Well, good morning, church in the room, and uh, good morning to church online. It's so good to be with you, and uh, we're just going to dive right in this morning and uh, uh, get after it. So if you would, please grab your copy of, of God's Word and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20. Now, last week we covered chapters 18 and 19, and, and this Sunday we're going to uh, just cover the one chapter here in chapter 20. And uh, those three chapters, 18 through 20, are very much a cohesive unit. They go well together. Uh, for example, in the first part of chapter 18, uh, we see that Jonathan and David make a covenant with one another. And now we're going to see here in our text today that the, the covenant is going to be on display or, or if I could say it this way, the covenant is going to be in action this morning. And, and as we enter into this passage this morning, here, here's the main point I'd like for us to grab a hold of now. And this is what it, it, it says up on your screen. Loyal love brings safety and peace in the chaos. Loyal love brings safety and peace in the chaos. I mention that now because as this story moves along, this morning as it progresses, as it unfolds, uh, my hope is that we'll, we'll see this unfold right in front of our eyes. Now recall from last week that God saves David by humiliating Saul, um, by, by, by stripping him of his clothes and laying him out. And uh, we had, earlier we had seen that, that uh, God stripped Saul of the kingdom and then we saw now that uh, God is literally stripping Saul of his clothes and it's almost like, uh, hey, be humble or be humiliated. And the thing is with this text is that there's no break in the story. In the, in the original uh, text, the Hebrew text, there, there's no chapter break. And there's, there's, no, uh, there's no header, new paragraph header or anything like that. And so the story just keeps moving along. And so that's what we're gonna do this morning. We're just gonna dive right in. We're gonna pick up the story here in chapter 20, verse one. Follow along if you would, please. God's word says, then David fled from Nyot and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he, Jonathan, said to him, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. So we see that, that while, while David is, pro, or sorry, Saul is prostrate in the, in the uh, dust in Nyot, David flees Nyot and now runs to where Jonathan is at, most likely in Gibeah. You can almost hear the anguish in David's voice, can't you? He's like, what have I done? Uh, how do I, I go from being greatly loved by the king which the text explicitly says in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 21, that Saul greatly loved David. How do I go from that to being so hated by the king that now he wants to kill me? It's a legit question. Note also here the shock in Jonathan's response. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by this. Uh, recall from uh, chapter 19 and verses four through seven that uh, Saul had previously made a vow with um, Jonathan before the Lord that he would not kill David. And that's the last time that we see Jonathan on the scene until now. So it's quite possible that, that Jonathan had no idea that Saul had broken his vow and was trying to kill David. Now let's pick up here in, in, verse, um, uh, in verse three. 
But David vowed again saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I'll do for you. So, so here we see that David takes a vow. Uh, he, he swears before the Lord and, and before Jonathan's life that he is just a step away from death. What's interesting here too is, is that uh, Jonathan believes him. He believes his friend. So he's basically like, okay, so David, what do you think we should do? Whatever you say, let's do it. And look what David says here in, in, in verse five. David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow's the new moon and I should not fail to sit at table with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. And if he says good, that being Saul, if Saul says good, it will be well with your servant. But, but if Saul is angry, then know that harm is uh, determined uh, by him. And so we, we see here that, that David has a plan, a, a test to see whether Saul really wants to kill him or, or perhaps it was just a, a, a fluke. Maybe, maybe Saul's over it. Whatever irritated him that led him to, to want to kill David, perhaps he's over that now. I'll, I'll make note here that, that in verse five, David mentions a, a new moon and a feast. You see, the, the new moon on the Israelite calendar marked the beginning of a new month. And so at the beginning of the, the new month, the Israelites would make animal sacrifices to the Lord. And then they would follow that up with a feast. They would celebrate the coming month together. And so what Saul would do is he would eat the feast with his top officials. And since David was a top military official, it makes sense for David to be at Saul's table. And here's the test, David says. Uh, he says, I I'm gonna go hide in the field. I'm gonna go hide in the field outside the city. And, and if Saul notices that I'm missing and he asks about it, then Jonathan, you, you should tell him that I asked to go to my hometown of Bethlehem for a sacrifice with my family. And David notes that, that this test will produce one of two responses from Saul. It could produce, on the one hand, uh, Saul saying good. If Saul says good, then it means that David is, is safe from harm. He can come out of hiding. All is clear. However, if Saul is angry, then it means that he intends to do harm with David and that David's not safe. Let me pause just for a second here. This plan that David and Jonathan put together here requires that Jonathan lie to his dad. Is that right? Is it wrong? We don't have time to, to do a deep dive on this this morning, so I'm gonna leave it in your capable hands to ponder this. But let me just make a note that oftentimes in, in narrative, especially Old Testament narrative, God records events and the activities of people without providing commentary on what he thinks about it. So we need to be careful not to presume upon God one way or the other and automatically think that just because God records the events that have happened that he, he approves or disapproves of what's taken place. 
The same, uh, so we need to think biblically. We need to think theologically as we ponder this. The same could be said for, for uh, what we saw in chapter 18 with David killing the 200 Philistines and chopping off their foreskins. There's no commentary from God on what he thinks about that. Let's apply that here in this context as well. So with that, have fun pondering this week. <laughs> Let's pick up in verse eight. David is, is still speaking to Jonathan. He says, therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined to, by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? And, and David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go into the field so they both went out into the field together. Here in verse eight, we see that David asked Jonathan to deal kindly with him. That phrase, that term, deal kindly, means to do loving kindness. It comes from the Hebrew word of, uh, that, that, uh, the Hebrew word chesed. You didn't know you were getting a Hebrew lesson this morning. Chesed has a, a very rich understanding and meaning in the Old Testament. It, it's used over and over again, and oftentimes it, it describes God's covenant love and faithfulness to his people. And so David here is saying, hey, show me chesed, show me steadfast love. And then he says, the basis for, for Jonathan, Jonathan's chesed is the covenant that they have with each other. And David's referring to the covenant that they made back in chapter 18, verse 3. And recall then uh, that covenant that Jonathan promises to yield his right to the throne. He, he takes his robe off and he, he gives it to, to David, symbolically indicating that he's giving up the throne and putting it in David's hands. And so here we see that David is appealing to that covenant. Now, don't miss this. What, what's going on right here is a big deal. And sometimes we might overlook it because we just don't understand all of the, the ins and outs of this idea of covenant. Make no mistake, though, that what's going on here is, is uh, more than a promise. It's more than a pledge. It's more than scout's honor. It's certainly not uh, two kids on the playground saying they got each other's backs. It's more than that. You see, in, the old, in those, those ancient times, covenants were both functional and relational. They had a, a function to them, but it was always in the context of, of a relationship. And the focus of covenants was on honor and that relationship. They included uh, blessings on the one hand for honoring the covenant and then curses on the other hand for uh, dishonoring or breaking the covenant. And, and then uh, people in the times would, would make their gods and others be witnesses to what was taking place. And then they would invoke the curse of their God if the covenant was broken. And then they would solemnize the covenant through a ceremony that typically involved an animal sacrifice. So making a covenant in those days was taken very, very seriously. Maybe a, a modern day example of, of, uh, that comes close to capturing this covenant idea is marriage covenant. In fact, in the Old Testament, in Malachi uh, chapter two, uh, God himself refers to marriage as a covenant. And so in a marriage covenant, a man and a woman stand before the Lord and other witnesses and they make vows to one another and to the Lord himself to live together as husband and wife until death separates them. 
And of course, there's a whole ceremony involved in all of that. And it's followed up by a feast, a celebration at the reception that we call. Of course, minus usually animal sacrifices. But what we see here in this text is not a marriage covenant, but more of of what we could consider a loyalty covenant with one another. There is a loyal love between Jonathan and David. In fact, as you as we continue to see, uh, read through this, this text, this interaction that they have with each other, there's covenant language all over it, all over it. Now stop and ask yourself this question. Why would David turn to the son of the king for help? I, I would think like the son of the king would be the last person on the planet that I would turn to for help because the son is heir to the throne. And so in that same vein, then the son would probably want to kill me too. So why does David turn to the son of the king? Answer, he's trusting in the covenant that they have with each other. Friends, there's safety in loyal love. There's safety and loyal love. David, David here is seeking the refuge of a friend. And in covenant with Jonathan, he finds the safety and security. He rests in the covenant. His very life depends on it, friends. I'll just note, we do similar things too, don't we? I mean, when we're in the midst of adversity, we tend to turn to those we can trust. I, I know for me, when uh, I'm in the thick of it, sometimes it's just good to know that somebody has your back. How much more so for those in covenant with one another? Their safety and loyal love. Let's look at how Jonathan responds now. Let's pick up in verse 12. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord the God of Israel be witness. There's the uh, Jonathan invoking God to be witness of what's about to take place. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, there's the curse, if he breaks it, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you. There's the blessing as he has been with my father. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. And so what we see here is Jonathan is is promising to come and tell David how Saul reacts. And then it's interesting here in verse 14, because he then asked David to show the steadfast love of the Lord to him and his house forever. Uh, Steadfast love. Take a wild guess what Hebrew word uh, that Jonathan uses there to describe steadfast love. Chesed. I saw many of you try to do that. Good job. Chesed. It's the same word that, John, that David uses back up in verse eight for deal kindly. What's so cool about this is they're both appealing to the covenant love that they have between them. They both are. And here we, we notice that, that Jonathan adds an addendum to the original covenant by asking David not to kill his family. 
when he, when he takes over the throne. It was common in those days when a new royal line ascended to, to the throne that they would kill the old, every person in the old uh, royal line so that there was never a possibility for that line to come back in and be king again. And Jonathan's like, hey, please don't do that. Show chesed to my family. And then, like the, think about this, the cherry on top, icing on the cake. Jonathan's like, hey, by the way, would you swear to that by your love for me? <laughs> Friends, there's a lot of emphasis in this passage on the importance of commitment and honor. I just want to, to point out that this is set in stark contrast to Saul's lack of covenant faithfulness to God and his lack of, of commitment to um, other people. His lack of integrity. But Jonathan's just getting warmed up. Let's, let's continue. Uh, Jonathan uh, here is continuing to speak in verse 18. Let's read this. Then Jonathan said to him, tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy saying, go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. Then, then you are to come for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go. For the Lord has sent you away and as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. I love this. I love this. Uh, David is, is uh, to go into the field and hide behind a large rock. Don't miss the details of what Jonathan is saying here. And so Jonathan's gonna come and with his bow and his arrows and a, and a young boy. Uh, by the way, doesn't this just seem to like take you back to your childhood days with, with you and your friends when you were building tree houses and forts together and, and, and you were kind of like, okay, let's develop our own secret codes, passwords, secret signals here for one another. Uh, so that you and your friends are the only ones who know about it. It's almost, so, so, so Jonathan and David are, are walking in the field at this point and Jonathan's explaining the plan and they didn't have iPads to diagram uh, plans in those days. And so I, I almost wonder if uh, Jonathan kind of like kneels down and in, the, in the dirt and he clears it off here and grabs a stick and he's like, okay, pay attention, David, here's the plan. Here's the rock right here. You're gonna hide behind it. And then I'm gonna come in over here. And if I shoot arrows this way, then um, that means that it's safe for you to come out of hiding because my dad doesn't wanna kill, uh, kill you. You tracking with me, David? Okay, good. So here, uh, however, if I, if I shoot this way over you, beyond you, what that means then is that my dad does wanna kill you and it's time for you to leave. Plan, agreed, break, right? There's one more thing I wanna point out though. That's very interesting here in verse 22. Jonathan says, but if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, look at this, for the Lord has sent you away. That's good theology, folks. Jonathan is thinking rightly here. See, he's recognizing that whatever happens is by God's hand, ultimately. God is in control of what happens. So if David must flee from Saul, it isn't so much because of Saul as it is that the Lord is sending him away. 
Question, do you and I think this way in our suffering? Do we recognize God's sovereign hand, his complete and utter control in our chaos? Jonathan does. And what's so cool is he reminds his friend, his hurting friend of that too. And maybe we should do more of that, ponder more of God's sovereignty in our suffering and and maybe even as appropriate, encourage one another with words like that. So that's the plan. Now let's see how it all plays out. Let's pick up here in in verse uh, 24. So David hid himself in the field and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat as at other times and on the seat by the wall. And Jonathan sat opposite. And Abner, that's uh, Saul's general, sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. So uh, what we see uh, happen is Saul's around the table with his friends, uh, his officials on uh, the first night of the feast. And he doesn't say anything about uh, David's missing spot because he figures that that David has probably become ceremonially unclean. And and you see, uh, according to Israelite law, when you were unclean, you were not allowed to participate in sacrificial food. You had to become clean before you could participate in it. And it was quite common to become unclean, especially for a warrior uh, like David. But now let's look at verse 27. But on the, the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answers Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. So by the second night, Saul is like, okay, I'm not gonna keep quiet anymore. Um, I'm gonna ask Jonathan, where is David? Where is David? And then Jonathan proceeds to to, uh, tell Um, his father, the story, the lie that he and David made up. Let's see how Saul responds to that. By the way, I'll just note, Saul does not refer to David as David once in this text. He's the son of Jesse. Look at verse 30. Then Saul Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me for he shall surely die. And Jonathan Jonathan answered Saul, his father, "Why, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. I gotta tell you friends, Saul's response here to Jonathan speaks volumes about his intentions, intentions for David. First off, in verse 30, we see that the text says his anger is kindled against Jonathan. That means it rose quickly, it flared up, 
in an instant. It was like zero to 60, just like that. Then he, he calls Jonathan a son of a perverse, rebellious woman. It actually sounds kind of kooky in our uh, English translations. Uh, actually, what he's, what he's doing here is demeaning and degrading. Our English translations rightly soften it quite a bit just to be sensitive to our innocent ears. We're gonna keep it uh, PG this morning, but let me just suffice to say that, that Saul is cussing his son out. And add to that, he then tries to manipulate Jonathan by, by dangling the kingdom in front of his face. He's like, hey, as long as David's alive, you will never be king and your kingdom will never be established. So go get him, let's kill him. Total manipulation. And then when Jonathan asks this is a reasonable question, like what's David done wrong? Saul responds by throwing his spear at his son. Saul's heart of anger has so taken hold of him that now he even resorts to the attempted murder of his own son. Friends, I just gotta say, what Saul says and does toward his son here is evil. Dads aren't supposed to treat their kids this way. Dads are supposed to, to, to love and serve and protect and sacrifice themselves for their children. I can't fathom the pain Jonathan must have felt in that moment. But maybe some of you do. How does a dad get to this level of depravity? Well, for Saul, it started first with jealousy and frustration. And then outward signs of, of anger. And it moved from there into to, to bitterness internally in his heart. Bitterness took root there. And he just eyed David like, I'm keeping my eye on you, Duke. I'm gonna kill you. And then before long, it overflowed out of his own heart into murderous rage toward David and now towards his own son, his own flesh and blood. If you're here this morning, you're full of anger or frustration or jealousy or bitterness. Can I just say, be careful, loved one. And I'm talking to me too. Because I've had to do some serious heart level business with the Lord these last months. And even as I prepared for this sermon today over some frustrations that I have in life, and if you and I are not careful, friends, if we're not careful, then these frustrations will progress into full-blown hearts of anger and it'll have devastating consequences. I'm only ever one cent away from being out of ministry permanently. But how does Jonathan respond here? Look at how he responds with grief, not for his father, but for David. Man, I gotta tell you, what a loyal, loving, faithful friend. Well, let's see what happens next, verse 35. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David 
and with him a little boy. And he said to the boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called out after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, don't stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master, but the boy knew nothing. We knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times and they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. So what we see here is that, that just as, as they agreed, Jonathan meets up with David on the third day in the field and, and uh, he uses the, the secret words to, to signal to David that my dad does actually want to harm you. It's time for you to flee. It's time for you to go. And then when the, the boy uh, leaves, then David emerges from his hiding place and he, he bows three times before Jonathan. Uh, that's a sign of respect for Jonathan. And then they embrace and they, they're weeping and they're kissing and they're hugging. There's nothing romantic about that. That's just how people expressed grief and sorrow with one another in those days. It's so interesting too that the text even points out that David wept more. I think it's pretty clear to him. He's got some really hard, painful days ahead. Here's a friendship that withstood the test of Saul's hatred. Look how it finishes here in verse 42. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And David rose and departed and, and Jonathan went into the city. That's so interesting there's chaos around him, and yet Jonathan says, go in peace. Go in peace. And the reason that he can say that, the reason that there can be peace between them is because they have covenanted that the Lord will remain between them forever. The Lord is the, the, the divine bond of this covenant. He's the epicenter of it. And so there's peace between them. Friends, in the adversity, we find uh, peace and loyal love. There's peace in the chaos because Jonathan kept the covenant. By the way, you can jot this down to go look at later on. Uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 9, 2 Samuel chapter 9, uh, King David shows steadfast love, chesed, to Jonathan's son by giving him uh, the Jonathan's family's land and then inviting the son to uh, David's table. He shows him chesed. He honored the covenant even after Jonathan's death. Friends, Jonathan and David's loyal love brought safety and peace in the adversity. But the point of this story is not that we all just need a friend like Jonathan. We should value friendships. They are to be desired for sure. 
But if, if our conclusion is that all we need is a friend like Jonathan to provide safety and peace in our suffering, then all we've got is just another moralistic story. And we might as well just sing, uh, you got a friend in me from Toy Story as our last song today. The reality is that this story is bigger than that. We need a greater Jonathan. We need someone who never breaks covenant even when we do. Someone who will never fail in his loyal love for us even as we consistently fail in our loyal love for him. This real life story that we've been looking at here this morning is a, is, is a picture it's a fascinating illustration of God's loyal love for you and me through Jesus. Let me explain. Let me go into this a little bit more. Jesus Christ left the throne of heaven. He became a man and he, he walked on this, this earth. And while he did, he kept perfect covenant loyalty with God the Father the whole time. Never once did he fail. We didn't do that. We've never done that. Jesus did what we failed to do. And Jonathan's loyalty here points to Jesus because Jesus is the greater Jonathan. Jonathan's loyal love provided safety and peace for one man. Jesus's loyal love provides safety and peace for all men. Jonathan is the son of a human king. Jesus is the son of the divine king and is in fact himself, the king of kings and Lord of lords. And by his death, burial and resurrection, he ushered in a new covenant and he mediates this new covenant. You wanna know what Jesus is doing right now? He's interceding right now in the throne room of God. And he looks at me and he says, mine, I'm in covenant with him. And if you place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, he looks at you right now by name and reminds the Godhead, not that they've forgotten, that they're in perfect loyal love, covenant love with you. That's what Jesus has done and that's what Jesus is doing right now. Earlier, I put up on the screen that, that loyal love brings safety and peace in the chaos. I, I wanna modify that slightly here, uh, go vertical with it. Jesus Christ's loyal love brings safety and peace in the chaos. Maybe you're here this morning in the midst of chaos. Man, I gotta tell you, This past week seemed like the storm clouds of suffering unleashed torrential downpours on so many of you in our faith family. Wave after wave, report after report of so much new suffering. Can I just tell you, we prayed hard for you this week with tears. Whatever you have in your life right now, hear me. Bank on this, Jesus Christ is our only hope in the chaos. If you're in Christ, he is your faithful and loyal savior who has covenanted with you to never leave you or forsake you. So run to him, we need him. His arms are wide open. Come to me, 
All you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. He is greater than Jonathan. Friends, Jesus Christ's loyal love brings safety and peace in our suffering, in our adversity. And we need only look to the cross and the empty tomb to be reminded that our greater Jonathan, our magnificent God is with us always. And so Lord, we leave it there. We've approached the throne of grace this morning, seeking mercy from you, worshiping you and you alone because you and you alone are worthy of it. Jesus, you are the greater Jonathan. And so we behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's you, Jesus. And you are interceding for us right now. And so we worship you for that. Oh God, thank you for your loyal love. Would you help us to live out of that reality this week, God? Would you help us to find our rest in the, in the suffering and in the, in the adversity and the, the chaos? Day by day, find us faithful more and more so, Lord, and cause within us this, this desire to see you face to face and fall on our faces and have you wipe away the tears of suffering ushering in indomitable joy for all your people, for all uh, eternity, God. We love you, O God. You are awesome in all of your deeds towards us. Thank you for the stories in the Old Testament that point us to you. And we pray these things in Christ's name, amen.